Good. I would like to request your attention, uh, some clarifications about our exercise, Satipatthana practice, contemplative introspection on the basis of the four establishments of mindfulness. Um, it is the moment to say a few things about what Buddhist psychology calls Vedana and what is confusingly translated sometimes as feeling. Um, this is a dimension of our experience that you are experiencing right now, um, just to be clear. Uh, think of Vedana, and I think the best translation for that quality is uh, the slightly technical hedonic tone. Okay, Hedone, pleasure, Hedonic tone means the degree of pleasure or displeasure every event in your experience has. These events may be mental. You may uh, experience a thought as pleasant, an image as pleasant, uh, a mathematical formula as pleasant, an aesthetic arrangement as pleasant, or they may be insulting to you. They may be uh, giving you a sense of displeasure. Uh, important is that you understand that Vedana is not connected with your will. It is not something you have a choice about. You do not have a choice what types of Vedana you get. You only have a choice what you do with that type of experience. Yeah, this is important. So, Often uh, the response that uh, we have in view of an event in our experience is strongly influential what happens to our attention. So Vedana is governing our attentional direction. This is quite important and it's strange that we in uh, Western psychology do not often speak of this. We speak of the pleasure tone, but then it's fairly technical. In Buddhist psychology, this is squarely a central category. Yeah. So, if I grab that cushion, and if I scratch my fingernails on this, for some of you, this will give a very direct Vedana. Yeah, I would expect du rather Dukkha, dukkha Vedana. Yeah. So, this is this is what Vedana is. You don't have a say about it. You know, it either makes your hair stand on end or it leaves you cold. Yeah. Now we have any moment of our experience, we have such things. And we respond strongly to such stimuli. This is not, not even liking yet. Okay? This is before liking. This is that something in your system registers as pleasant or as unpleasant. It's not an emotion, it has nothing to do whether it gives you feel joy or uh, whether it gives you uh, the emotion of aversion. It is not even connected with volition yet. You're not even saying, yes, I want more of this, although if it's nice, there is a great likelihood that you will do so in a moment. And if it's not nice, there is a great likelihood that you will go into aversion or into rejection of it. We're speaking of a, a simple quality of sensitivity. And that quality is so fundamental to our mind 
that we can find it even down to a cellular level, cells. When they are stimulated in ways that irritate them, they do things. They, turn, they curb their membranes. They, they, sh- they shift their shape. Yeah? So this Vedana principle is something that is, as long as we can make investigations into life forms, it's there. Very simple things, a couple of amino acids strung together long before it does things like oxygen breathing or complex mating rites or so, moves towards anything that is nourishing and moves away anything that it perceives as toxic. So this principle of irritability is right there across all forms of life. And it's obviously also there in our mind. Usually it is so brief that we do not take notice. So rather than taking notice that something is unpleasant, we skip the bit of actually noticing the unpleasant and go straight into reactiveness. In other words, if it's nice, we just say, ooh, yeah, yes, lots of time, lots of awareness, lots of space for you. And if it's not nice, we say, ooh, yeah. In other words, the Vedana governs our attentional direction and very quickly then leads on. It is fair to say that Vedana in itself does not produce volition, so it does not say wanting or pushing away, but it takes a very trained mind and a very calm state for us to be capable to experience pleasantness without trying to prolong it, without trying to indulge it, without trying to make it last, without wishing it would come back. So often, Vedana, while in itself not the problem, gives rise to the problem. The problem is called desire and attachment aversion. So Satipatthana exercises ask us to identify the segment in which we experience pleasant and unpleasant. Now, on one level, this is difficult because it's often fast. And on one level, it's easy because these things are quite discernible. Once they reach a certain intensity, it, you can't fail to notice that something in you goes, ooh, yeah, or Whoa. Usually, Vedanas do not talk. They make sounds, yeah. Sounds along the lines I've tried to indicate. So you notice sort of a, a kind of a meter, then it spikes a little bit, sort of, ooh, yeah, uh, yeah. So we go through our life and we respond in, in this way to everything that comes up in our mind, to everything that touches our senses. You do that right now. You may feel that this is not happening and that is likely due to the fact that the threshold intensity where you register consciously that something has touched you pleasantly is not reached. So Buddhist tradition speak of uh, basic three basic categories of Vedana. One is pleasant, that gives rise. It's it's agreeable. It uh, uh, it feels interesting. It uh, it is pleasurable, or it is the opposite. And then there is a a, a middle category. Um, some people think it is neutral. I personally think there is no such category of neutral. I just I think there is a category of indifference in between. That things in be, in between are not intense enough to lean either way. I don't actually think there is a third notch 
on your spectrum. Um, it's pretty much either or, or not strong enough to register either way. If you become more quiet and the mind settles, some of these things that were uh, you were indifferent towards become clear enough that you dis notice that they're distinctly pleasant or distinctly unpleasant. Now notice, you can have multiple Vedanas connected with one experience. You may experience something as pleasant and then you realize this actually collides with your moral understanding and it may feel unpleasant that you actually liked something or that you found that pleasant. Or you may not right now want to be pleased because you prefer not to share your pleasure with uh, in this particular situation. Um, it may flick. Yeah? Initially it may be pleasant and suddenly may become unpleasant. Uh, the third little apple tart just may not do it anymore, as did the first. Yeah? So, uh, the Vedanas have a tendency, if you pursue them, to turn into their opposite. Yeah? You get, um, there's many different things that can happen on a plane of Vedana. While initially the little babble in your head may be quite agreeable, but after you've been listening to you, that babble for six hours, you may just wish to have a button to switch it off. Yeah? Um, the same movie that you've anticipated with great delight, watched with great delight, if it keeps being replayed in your head, you may wish you hadn't seen it. Yeah? There is a, so our, a, the same things don't always give us the same type of Vedana. And the Vedana may decrease. So it's important for meditators to actually identify the tone of our pleasure or displeasure at the basis of our attentional direction. Our attentional economy is greatly governed. It's very simple. Vedana rules. So much of our attentional activity has to do with maximizing pleasant states, pleasant experience, pleasant events in my senses, and minimizing unpleasant, uncomfortable, painful ones. It's quite sobering if you realize how persistent we are in trying to maximize just feeling good. And not even properly feeling good, just get good stuff. You know, Often we don't reward the good stuff with actually genuinely appreciatively feeling good. We can be quite complacent when we get the good stuff. You know, it, it bores us quickly. Or we start to take it for granted immediately. Or we start coveting something that seems even better than, than the good we have coveted yesterday. And we now have. So it is a highly fleeting and yet a persistent dimension in our experience. Meditators are often inclined to rate their meditative experience on the basis how good it feels. It's baffling to me how willing people are to think that their meditation is good if the feelings they have are good. If they experience pleasant states, if they experience unpleasant states, how easily meditators are swayed to believe that this is actually not working. Yeah. The implicit expectation is if it is good for me, if it has value for me, it must make me feel good. Yeah. Now, there's plenty of things you can learn from meditation that does not feel good. Yeah, it has to be said. 
Uh, you can practice with sleepiness, it doesn't generally feel good. You can practice with pain, doesn't generally feel good. You can practice with challenging mind states, doesn't feel good. You can practice with a distracted mind, and you may conclude that it, since it doesn't feel good, I'm not doing it right. Notice there's an I coming in very quickly. We were speaking of feeling tone and hedonic tone, and suddenly it's me having them. It's me owning them. It's me being defined by them. So we quickly construe and pile stuff on top. We pile narrative on top of Vedana. Often also, because the Vedana are fast, the reactiveness sets in. Usually, with pleasant Vedana, it means I widen my attention. I open up. I try to associate. I try to get close. I try to get more of it. I try to, you know, why don't you stay a little yeah. Uh, with unpleasant, I try to do the opposite. I try to minimize its impact. I try to minimize my attention to it. I try to move away from it. I see what who, what else is happening here right now. I could find more, more choose in. And if it is distinctly unpleasant, I may actually go into sort of a conflict mode. I may push. I may respond aversely. I may... Uh, take my attention aside or I may fixate on it in a sort of angry way, yeah? usually fueled by then distinct emotional processes that are followed, uh, that are following the Vedana. Yeah? If it doesn't go away and I can't, can't avert it by simply turning my attention elsewhere, I reluctantly attend to it, but in in not benign ways, you know. I stare at it, I hate it, I, I emote onto it with some form of rejecting, aversive, uh, intentional move. So, meditators can acknowledge this, and just as a standard procedure, I would like to introduce that you check in. Well, you know, do I like this, or more precisely, not even the liking, is this pleasant? right now. I'd suggest you be willing to lower the bar. Usually people speak of pleasure and they think of sort of orgasmic intensities. That's not what we're talking of. We're speaking of just what psychologists sometimes call functional pleasure. Just the mere use of your senses gives a moderate functional pleasure. A very low threshold type of pleasure that is in contrast and Many people may not even know that because they don't experience the deprivation of their senses that comes through the mere use of a sense. You may notice that if you, if you fast for a while and you don't eat things, so you don't stimulate your gustatory sense, um, just the brightness of your food fantasies that kicks in has something to do with the deprivation of that sense. So your mind goes back to the memory and brings up some food fantasies or, or fantasies how things tasted or how you felt when you tasted them. And you may find you have an exquisite recall of tortelloni al gorgonzola you've eaten 15 years ago. You wouldn't even remember that you've eaten them, you know, last week when you were still eating. You may also find that if you're, um, remember being hospital, just 
in a very clean environment and having a friend come round who just the relish of smelling a leather jacket and faint cigarette smoke you know as a non-smoker i'm not overly keen on cigarette smoke but i just remember the humanity of this and in the cleanliness of my hospital environment this was a real relief a human being had entered my world so the deprivation of our senses we often experience as severely unpleasant now we live in a while in a world where we can stimulate our senses quite a lot so to experience deprivation usually takes either conscious effort or it takes some kind of crisis or um, some accident in our lives. But the mere use of a sense, irrespective of the pleasantness of the actual experienced sensory input, the mere use of the sense itself is deemed to be more pleasant than not using that sense organ. I've been cave climbing in my youth and it, you know being out of daylight for for long stretches at a time that that relish when you see the first time genuine daylight again you know after you've been down there in the dark with your torches for for two days or so that a powerful experience or if you If you go to, um, I forgot what it is called, these chambers where you have no no um, sound. So, you know, the specific chambers, just the, the un, unease that you experience when there are, everything is muffled. Not just as, not as nicely muffled as when you wa- walk through fresh snow, yeah? And the, the powder snow absorbs all the sounds. But when you go to a place where there is no sound... So we are quite uneasy when our senses, albeit functioning, not receive any input. For meditators, that means we, we, if you're used to high-powered sensory input, then attending to, say, a, an in-breath and an out-breath is quite a challenge because the discrepancy between what you're used to and what you're now asked to attend to is huge. Yeah. So that's why sensory impingement is rated an obstacle to meditation practice. Um, It's not a moral decision. Uh, It's simply, if your mind is used to high-pitched inputs, it is very unlikely to be able to appreciate smaller intensities. It's very simple. If you want to taste green tea and enjoy green tea, you probably have to give up your fisherman's friend. Just because highly mentalized pastels do things to your gustatory sensory apparatus that make it unlikely that you'll appreciate something as green tea. Very simple. If you you will have you can choose both, but you will have probably loss. The green tea won't do it if you are used to mentalized uh, uh, lozenges of that kind. It's not a moral decision. It's simply. You're going to lose. If, you, if you're interested in this, you'll probably have to reduce that. So if you're interested in being able to attend to in-breathing and out-breathing and establish some of the pleasure in that as the basis for deepening stillness, then you will probably be interested in minimizing some of the loud sensory impingements you may be used to in urban life. That's why we choose quiet settings for meditation retreats. That's why we... Uh, you know, close down the entertainment program to 
three meals and a, and a Dhamma talk, yeah, which, and suddenly you become grateful, suddenly you become, you know, in the paucity of that environment, you become uh, more interested in yourself, basically. You become, you find it more easy to attend to your own inner process by, by us decreasing the entertainment level to such a pitiful threshold. So you get the gist. It's not an easy exercise, and yet it's quite doable. Once you've identified the channel of pleasant and unpleasant and indifferent in your experience, you realize that you do not actually have to follow from a pleasant experience to grasping, to attaching, to wanting to hold on and repeat. There is no law in the world that says, I have to do that. There is no law that says, if it's unpleasant, I have to be angry, despondent, aversive with it. We do have a lot of say in so-called non-reactiveness. I can experience pleasant things without getting all sorcerized. I can experience unpleasant things without getting aversive or despondent. It is quite possible. But only so if I notice what's happening. If I do not notice, I'm likely just running the whole program. Yeah? There's so many automatisms in there. Nice, wanted. Not nice, away with it. Yeah. So, one simple way to introduce that into meditation is whenever you find yourself distracted today, whenever you find your mind has left the breath or the body, do acknowledge two things. A, is what has taken the mind away, or more precisely, where I find the mind with, at the moment you become conscious that you have strayed off, is what I find myself with right now. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? I think of Peter and my heart beats higher. I think of Susie and something goes, oh, yeah. So you notice it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. That's the first question. The second question is, is this of mental nature or is this of physical nature? Very simple. Mental is anything that comes out of your mind. An image, a thought, a memory, a fantasy. Physical is anything that comes from your five exterior senses. <coughs> Forgive me. So anything you see, anything you hear, anything you get touched with, anything you smell. Uh, yeah. Uh, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling and tasting. Yeah. So those would be the five outer senses. So two questions. You find yourself distracted, and before bringing back the mind to your object med meditation task, and without analysis, just two que questions, a scratch statistic, okay? Is it mental or is it physical? What has distracted me? Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant, what I'm preoccupied with right now? Just acknowledge this. At the end of the day, you'll have a nice scratch statistic, which says, so many mental things, so many unpleasant, so many pleasant things. You'll get a gist of this. And then you go back and do your task. That task is still body awareness. It is still breathing. And I would like to suggest some things about breath. Often the breath is so familiar in ways that we do 
that we have lost our bearings on it. It's good to identify a number of qualities of the experience of breathing that may serve, only may serve as qualities I can actually investigate in. You know, you learn to know something better because you are interested in it. So interested, interest is the mother of uh, mindfulness. It's difficult to just be mindful if you order yourself to do so. If you find something interesting, interesting, it'll be a lot easier to associate with it. If you associate more deeply with it, you will be able to bring your inquiring and your receptive mind qualities to it. Suddenly, this thing will become more textured. If it is more textured, it is easy to attend to it. So one way of making it more interesting is identifying a number of qualities. So in the breath, Let's, let's lose five simple qualities. One of them is just how deep does this breath go? Just acknowledge what is the lowest area where I do feel the breath go into this body. How deep is it allowed to go? Yeah. Very simple. Does it go down here to my chest or to my belly or really low? How deep does it go? We'll run a little exercise later, but let me go through my list here. The second question, and I'll repeat this, so don't worry, you'll hear it again. The second question is, how fast was my breathing? What is the rhythm of this breath? Very simple. Is, is my in-breath and my out-breath of the same length? Yeah. Rhythm consists of in-breath, out-breath, the pause between. Sometimes the breath is fast, sometimes it is not. There are no right or wrong answers, neither when it comes to depth nor when it comes to rhythm. But asking the rhythm of your breath brings you in relationship to a particular quality of your breathing experience. You want to become more intimate with that breathing experience. It's that intimacy that helps you grow mindfulness. And it's the mindfulness that in turn makes the mind more still. Mindfulness is the raw material for samatha, for or more precisely for samadhi, for calm. The third question is about the tone of your breathing. Is it flaccid or is it buoyant? <coughs> you know, is it full of life? Is there a great vitality? Breath has differing pulses. So the Indian tradition is full of identifying different types of pulse. You know, yogi tradition has a whole range of uh, names for the types of breath. Um, suffice to say, for our little exercise, let's identify, is the breath, as I experience it now, uh, vital? Does it have energy in it? Is, it? is it full or is it flaccid? Is it weak? Is it faint? Yeah. So we have depth, rhythm, tone. A fourth quality you may inquire in your breathing is, is how is the texture of this breath? If you have an in-breath, yeah, is this kind of jagged? Is this kind of the experience of, ca of a cat's fur or is this the experience of stroking a concrete surface? Yeah? Maybe this very smooth and silky and then there is a jag here. Yeah? So, just kind of if you breathe in the length, and it's important that breathing be 
something of duration rather than a point. Yeah. If you go through the phase of an in-breath, can you actually discern the ruggedness, the hoarseness, the smoothness, the silkiness of, a, of an in and of an out-breath? That would be an interesting quality to inquire into. Finally, you could inquire into the degree of resistance the body offers to your breathing process. This breath enters the body and sometimes it is as if I'm being breathed by the universe. It's very smooth. The breath seems to fill me and I don't do anything. It's just I'm receiving and allowing this to go, to come, to go. Sometimes it seems I have to do the work. You know, there are occasions when I have to do the pumping and the pushing. So you could, for example, acknowledge just how easily the body yields to this breathing process. I'd suggest you use these questions of depth, of rhythm, of tone, of texture, of body resistance, not as multiple choice questions. Yeah? You figure out which one of these qualities most speaks to you and then you listen. Yeah? The thing is not the answer to this question, but it's if a genuine question is asked, there usually opens a space behind the question and some deepening happens. So I become more intimate with something when asking this question. So use these questions as a way in. Don't use them analytically. Um, just as you throw a stone in the pond, you kind of look at its ripples and see. It gives you an idea how far the water goes and where the reeds begin, so to say. So, uh, I suggest a little shift. Please sit up for a moment. Close your eyes. Drop your attentional focus softly and widely into the organism as it sits here. Just acknowledge the bigness of you, how much space you take. And then let us acknowledge the surface of this body, where it touches the mat, where my hands touch the legs, where I feel the, the warmth of the body or the coldness of the surrounding air, where I may feel a little draft. Acknowledge the places where you feel your clothing on the skin. I'm always surprised where I don't feel the clothing on my skin. I, I know I'm reasonably clothed right now and I can distinguish quite a number of areas, usually sleeves and neck and belly, but that there are parts where I don't, where I know to be clothed and yet I don't necessarily feel very strongly that I am clothed. So take stock of this. The texture of the touch on your skin that you can experience right now. 
body surface, our hugest organ. Take a moment to go places where you usually don't go. How does your elbow feel? The arch of your foot. Do you feel the, the skin in the small of your back? Not your bones, not your sacrum, as you're likely to, but actually the skin. How much do you feel of your earlobes? Can you feel your lips without pressing or doing anything? Just feel lips that are not active, that they're not engaged in chewing or kissing or smoking or anything, eating. Just feel lips as they are in your face. Notice the mobility of your mindfulness or your attentional focus. How easily can you direct it? Does it, does it? does it like to be moved? Is this pleasant what we're doing right now or is this unpleasant? Are there things calling your attention at the surface of the body? Twitches? Itching? Warmth? Tingling? Anything at the surface of your body? Just being curious. How frowned is your forehead right now? So we have another dimension of bodily experience. We, can, we are now at the surface, we're dealing with tactile experience. Warmth, temperature, pressure, humidity, coolness or movement, all this is the surface of the body. Now notice that there is in the body sensations. Amorphous parts of the body that we can feel. They have differing densities, differing saturation, differing textures. The inside of my arm does not feel the same as my throat.
the solidity of my bones, sacrum, hips, shoulders, is quite distinctly different from my abdomen, for example, the inside of my knee. the place where my eyeballs are held in place, very different. One of the things that the body, if attended to in this way, notices that some parts are above other parts. I can actually feel whether my shoulders are above my hips. I don't do that with the help of skin. I do that with the help of my sense of proprioception. There's parts of this body that know what other parts are doing. I have a sense of alignment. I can actually sense that I am upright. I can sense that I am aligned. Test whether this is possible. I can feel whether my head is lolling forward. I can feel whether I am leaning more to one side than to the other without looking. Just by feeling the weight, by, we by feeling into the body's inner world. It's a little miracle. <coughs> Yet another dimension of body awareness is that this body inhabits space. It has volume. I can feel some of this volume. Easiest maybe is to feel it in the breathing process because the volume changes when I breathe in. The space of this body seems to increase. When I breathe out, the space of this body decreases, collapses a little bit. I can feel into the spaces that become accessible in the body. Some of these spaces in there are quite old. Like that's how my body began. Shortly after conception, a tiny little pile of cells gradually enfolding space, curbing, forming a hollow out of which grows a midline and very shortly a heart. This whole body is space enfolded. That's how it began. If I touch into my spaces, I may have echoes of times long distant. I couldn't say in words what happened, but there are tonal echoes there. I meet my history by feeling into those spaces. As any meditator will know. So acknowledge right now the spaces you feel, 
the spaces that are easily felt, and maybe spaces that you cannot inhabit, that you know are there, but you somehow are not being let in. Spaces that seem not on the map. Again, ask yourself, is this pleasant or is this not pleasant? If you do not know, don't worry. There's plenty of Vedana more to come. Don't preoccupy yourself with the ones that have passed. So take a moment to open the doors of your body spaces like a child that discovers a building it doesn't know and curiously pushes doors open, wide-eyed. Trusting an affectionate, interested type of attention. When you're in the realm of feeling the body, ask yourself where does the inside end and where does the outside begin? Where does the inner world shift and become the outer world in your experience? If you're a feeling being, does this end at the skin? Does it end 10 centimeters further out? Does it end with my aura? My energetic bubble? Is there such a boundary? There's a German poet who is famous for having coined a term which I cannot translate, but it means there is a space that reaches through all beings. And he says the birds are flying quietly, quietly across his chest.
Take a moment to find where that boundary is for you. Where does the inner and the outer meet? Or if indeed there is such a boundary. Good, take a moment, take a stretch. Maybe acknowledge the hedonic tone. Is the Vedana pleasant? Is the Vedana unpleasant? Uh, I would like to encourage you to take these two questions also to your walking meditation to be clear in your walking meditation. Take time to acknowledge the spaces of your body, the spaces in your being. It's natural that we begin meditative instructions with object orientation, sensations, touch, contact. But it is important to learn, although the focused object contact is the easiest to establish as an attentional focus. It's important to widen, to make the attentional space bigger than the thing you attend to. So as if you catch, when you dig out the little plant, you want to make sure you take all its roots so you don't just pull it up. You actually make sure you surround and take some earth with it. In the same way, let your mind attend in ways that are bigger than what it attends to. You see some space around people. You see the gap between thoughts. You come in and see the spaces rather than the things in a room. That helps.